0: Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio.
1: With Heffers Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876.
2: Hello, and welcome to Bookmark. This is the show that talks about books and writing with a local slant, and we have a theme of self-awareness on today's programme. Our featured guest is Hannah Jane Walker, talking about her book, The Power of Feeling Sensitive in a World That Doesn't. Nicholas Humphreys chats about his book, Sentience, The Invention of Consciousness, and Virginia Rath Lynch talks about The Cloak, a memoir and reflections on self-discovery. Uh, Hannah, welcome to Bookmark. We'll give you a proper introduction in a moment, but nice to have you here. Thank you so much for having me here. And I mentioned uh, Virginia's book, which is a, a sort of memoir and reflections. Yours is sort of a little bit of a memoir, but a study as well. How would you describe it?
0: As a question that I wanted to answer, really, which is how useful is sensitivity to society? The reason for wanting to do that is that I'm very highly sensitive, I come from a family of highly sensitive people and my daughter is and that's always been quite challenging and so what I really wanted to do in this book was to try and get some answers to that so each chapter I sort of interview an expert trying to fill in the gaps in that story about sensitivity and so it felt only fair to offer some of my own experience to that of parenting and being highly sensitive myself so I suppose it does slightly use some memoir aspects that was almost slightly accidental. And the genesis of this book is interesting because it, it
2: came out of a, a radio program that came out of a stage show.
0: It did. And if you would told me that this was ever going to become a book, I would have thought that that was quite highly unlikely. But I now realize, having written it as a book, that a book was the right format to explore it in all the way along. And that those other things were sort of steps edging it towards being a book. And I discovered that I love writing books in the process too. So that was a great discovery. Well, we'll hear your first choice of music in just a moment, but is music important to you? Hugely important to me, namely for shifting emotional states, actually. I cheer myself up with music. I calm myself down with music. I motivate myself with music. And what I found myself doing when I was writing this book was trying to find songs which were exploring some of the stuff that I was trying to talk about in the book and songs which made me want to write through either being cross and being like, no, I want to write about this. This is why this is important. Or songs that made me feel inspired.
2: And what about this one then, Big Mouth Strikes Again by The Smiths?
0: Like many people, this is a song which I've listened to in so many different formats. Boyfriends, bedrooms, taxi, radios, stations, like it's just one of those songs that kind of is so often played and so often loops around. For quite a long time, I found the song offensive, but catchy. And I had a boyfriend who particularly loved The Smiths and used to play this song over and over again. And that boyfriend is lovely. We're still friends, but very much believed that sensitivity was a problem and would sort of like... With some swagger, sing the lyrics to this song as if, like, everything that they're singing in it is right. Like, some of the lyrics are really brutal. And actually, the song is actually about the Smiths finding press attention really difficult. But I wanted to include it because so often, when I tell someone that I've written something about sensitivity, they immediately say, Oh, so you're talking about people being oversensitive. And they think that I'm talking about sort of almost like the snowflake generation as they're branded. And I am in a way, but. I'm trying to look at the positives of that rather than just pointing at the problem of it. So it felt like this song was an important one to begin with because this is almost a song which describes the story of sensitivity being used badly.
2: That was Big Mouth Strikes Again by The Smiths, the first choice of music on Bookmark today from our featured guest, Hannah Jane Walker. Hannah is a writer, poet, broadcaster, and playwright. She's currently an associate artist at Cambridge Junction and artist facilitator at Kettle's Yard, Cambridge. Her first book, Sensitive, came out this year. It explores the power of sensitivity in today's society through personal stories and interviews with relevant experts. I enjoyed it very much, Hannah. I learned a lot, such a lot. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about what you mean by sensitive in just a moment. But was that one of your intentions to educate?
0: To educate and then to really question what the value is that we put next to the trait of sensitivity because I really think it gets um, gets really bad rep. And I think it has more value than that. I just think it can have a better story. Yeah, so my intention was to sort of help try to change some of its value. Yes.
2: Yeah, so we think of sensitivity as weak. It's often equated as with weakness.
0: It is, and it's often used as an insult. We say to somebody like, Um, I think you're being a little bit too sensitive. And by that, we mean you are not coping and you are inconveniencing dot, 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 like whatever situation that you're in. And that absolutely can be the case. Like that is a real thing. I'm not denying that that's not a thing. But I also think that sensitivity has a positive side as well. So I wanted to help pull out some of that story and kind of go, well, what's it for? Because it wouldn't be in us if it wasn't for something.
2: So what do you mean by sensitive? What are your criteria when you're talking in the book about sensitive?
0: This is very much not my research findings. This is the research findings of some of a writer and psychologist called Dr. Elaine Aaron, who wrote a book called The Highly Sensitive Person. And she, in her research found that there's actually a type of person called a highly sensitive person. And through kind of various extensive research trials found that 20 to 30% of any given population could be termed highly sensitive. And that, that can be found in animal groups as, as well. And then it's never more than that. It's never more than 20 to 30%, which is interesting. She was like, well, what do we mean by highly sensitive? So she has broken it down into an acronym, which is does. So the D of that does stands for depth of processing, like how deeply are you processing situations and interactions of environments that you're in? The O is for overstimulation, like how... Overstimulated or not, are you by your environment? Highly sensitive people are very likely to reach that sort of almost fuse-out point a lot quicker than other types of people might. And so the E of that does is emotional intensity, responsiveness, and empathy. So how empathic are you to somebody in your environment? How keenly do you feel the emotions that somebody else is feeling? And the S is how sensitive are you to subtleties within an environment? And that can be different for all sorts of people. So for some people, that's touch-based. For some people, that is like interaction based, like noticing what's going on between two people or noticing anomalies in an environment. And I think we live with the assumption that we are all experiencing those things in a very similar way as neuroscience is developing and as psychology is developing. We're realizing that we are not all experiencing those things in the same way and that there's all kinds of types of intelligences, processing systems. And so highly sensitive people sit at sort of almost one end of a scale of sensitivity so when we say sensitive I mean we are all born sensitive to a degree and there is highly sensitive people at one end of the scale and they're described as being like orchids so they desc- they need like very specific set of variables in order to thrive and at the other end of the scale is what we describe as dandelions who pretty much will thrive no matter what environment they are given I don't know about you but I spent a lot of my life thinking we all were processing things similarly and we all had similar emotional worlds and of course we don't that's a really silly assumption for me to have made it caused a lot of confusion for me throughout my life and so highly sensitive people this kind of is part of a process and an attempt to try to understand how different people are experiencing the world in different ways and you say 30 percent. so three and ten so quite a significant amount of people actually Yeah, when you start thinking about it, and then you start thinking about maybe like a family unit or a friendship group or a workplace, you suddenly go like, oh, that's Yeah, that is a lot of people. What is commonly found in the research is that because this is a trait, and personality type, which doesn't really have much good story attached to it. There is a lot of people who will mask their true processing systems and their true nature and That is particularly found to be common amongst men because it's a lot less socially acceptable to say that you're a highly sensitive man. It's found in women too. The reality of what they're processing internally and then you would never necessarily know it through their social behaviour because they're disguising that. And this quality in yourself, it sounded
2: like you recognised quite young but were not comfortable with.
0: Oh, I was deeply uncomfortable with it, mortified actually. I thought it meant there was something profoundly wrong with me. I mean, I've done a lot of work and, you know, went into a creative career, namely because I needed space to try to understand some of that difference, I suppose. The irony is that the research tells me it's not even that different, that this is something that so many people are experiencing. And so part of my motivation for wanting to write the book was like, well, possibly quite a lot of people are walking around thinking, gosh, I wasn't, I wish I wasn't like I am and i think that's such a waste because we are made the way we are and sure there's skills we can give ourselves to develop particular strategies to cope and other skills within ourselves but we have particular personality types amongst us for a reason and you say in the book
2: sensitivity dresses in shame a shame that you felt so sad to read that
0: yeah i mean I, I grew up in cambridge and various cambridge villages and god i went to so many schools I think kids can sniff out difference at a mile they really do and that can go one of two ways really can't it but for me it always ended up that I would other myself and therefore get picked on therefore have a horrid time and would end up leaving the school and the idea being that hopefully a new environment would would give me a different set of variables but obviously I was the reoccurring thing in that environment and it was you know, you're very easy to pick on if you are ashamed of your own nature because you're a sort of walking target really. But yeah, it took me a long time to go, actually, I think I've got some value because of this trait. And I think I'm really useful for some things. And I can see some really key ways that I'm operating in the world that are useful, but I can see how the cultural narrative we have says that those things are not useful, but I don't believe that to be true. So that felt quite good to me. And also I have a highly sensitive daughter. So part of my motivation for wanting to change that story is that I hugely love my daughter. Yes, she's very like her dad and yes, she's very much her own person, but she also has some very key traits where she's really taking after me and her nature. I think she just deserves a really good story about herself in the same way that we have a really good story about some other traits that we value within society, like competition. We've got a great story for competition, haven't we? We've built a whole like a... Uh, money structure around that so i think it deserves a better story
2: yeah uh, because uh, you as i say you pepper the book with personal stories as well as interviews with experts and you talk about uh, your daughter and your mum and in fact you interview your mum so we see this thread is it inherited this
0: trait they found that it is inherited yes so they found it's genetic they found that it's equally found amongst men and women between introverts and extroverts which is interesting Was interesting to me because people would often say to me so you're talking about introverts right and I was like a bit as in like they found in the research that slightly more people might be a bit more introverted. I think it was something like 60% of people who are highly sensitive might be introverted but you, you have this other 40% who are extroverted and I think I happen to fall into the extroverted category otherwise I wouldn't be doing a job whereby i go on stage and talk to people all the time. And how did you decide on the experts
2: that you wanted to interview?
0: Yeah that's interesting because there's not experts who are sitting out there with job titles which is like professor of sensitivity that's not how it works and so the beginning when I was like thinking about the book proposal I, I slightly was feeling my way through what felt like the right people to talk to. So I was like, I'm pretty sure I want to speak to somebody about gut instinct. So for example, I did speak to somebody about gut instinct. But as you will see in the chapter, like I had to speak to three different people, because it's not an area where somebody is sitting there with a job title where they go, I have the answer. You know, it's kind of work where you have to dig through what experts think in various ways. And in other chapters, I, for example, interview somebody who talks about the future of future job economies. So for that, I just was like, well, who is doing that research? And I just spent quite a lot of time on the internet looking at who, who are some of the leading people who are out there. But what I realized in doing the research for the book is that often researchers will have known those things for quite a long time, but it doesn't mean we're implementing them in the world yet. It takes quite a long time for those shifts to happen. For example, in workplaces, or oh, within the education system. So that that was an interesting finding.
2: Thank you, Hannah. Well, uh, we'll come back to you in just a moment, but we'll, let's talk to another expert. Let's hear from Nicholas Humphrey. Nick is a theoretical psychologist. His previous books include Soldist, The Magic of Consciousness, and The Inner Eye. He's received the Martin Luther King Memorial Prize, the Puffendorf Medal, and the Mind and Brain Prize. Sentience, The Invention of Consciousness, came out this month. When I met Nick, I asked him what he meant by the term sentience.
1: Some people are beginning to use the term sentience for any signs of higher order intelligence in an animal or in a machine for that matter. But I'm using the term in a more old-fashioned way to refer to capacity for conscious feeling. And by that they mean the the thing that's so familiar to all of us, that whenever we are awake and, and, and alert, our minds are full of sensations. Lights and sounds and touches and smells and so on. And these sensations have a very peculiar feel to them. Somehow there's something otherworldly about them. They don't seem to belong in the physical world. I mean, the redness of red or the pain of a bee sting or the taste, smell of coffee, for that matter, they're not the kind of things which it's easier to translate into physical terms. And that's what I'm trying to explain in the book. To what extent do these kind of feelings, this kind of consciousness, exist for other animals than humans. Many people claim that all animals are sentient. But I think there's no evidence for that at all. And in fact, it would be extremely surprising. I think it's quite a sophisticated ability. This kind of consciousness came into existence quite late on in evolution, because it requires a rather well-developed brain. And it also requires an animal which can make some use of it. Things don't evolve in nature and let's say there's a payoff in the long run in terms of survival, biological survival. And if we think about what the survival value is of having this magical experience, this sense of ourselves as somehow existing outside of physics and outside the of materiality of our brain, then we have to look to psychological explanations of the kind which say, well, people or animals who think of themselves in those terms have a different attitude to themselves their place in the world, to other creatures like themselves who share that kind of feeling. The fact that you and I take it for granted, we feel pains and enjoy tastes and experience tickles and so on, this gives us both a sense of our own importance, but a closeness to each other. Now, what animals would need that kind of consciousness? It's only going to be animals which have a relatively sophisticated kind of social life, who need to relate to each other who need to think about themselves as being an individual and of other selves as being individuals having these kinds of experiences. In the book, I've come around to a rather radical conclusion. I don't think it happened until about 200 million years ago. That may sound a long time, but it's not very long in terms of evolution. And I think it happened at the point at which our ancestors, and of course the ancestors of cows and birds and dogs and so on, became warm-blooded. Only when we became warm-blooded they become independent of their environment. The world was their oyster. They weren't dependent any longer on the sun to keep them warm. They were able to move and to enjoy and to experience independence, which goes with having warm blood. And with that came a change in their sense of what it was like to be themselves in terms of their psychology. Fortunately, at that same time, because the brain had warmed up, the conduction speed of nerve cells had more than doubled. That allowed the development of some internal feedback loops, processes in the brain, which depend on, on kind of recurrent activation, which basically stretches out the sense of the time you're living in. Now, I'll explain what I mean by that kind of feedback. We have all had the experience of bringing a microphone rather too close to a large speaker. And suddenly you get feedback. Now that's what I think is happening in consciousness. We get these kind of internal loops occurring in our brain, which bring us into what I've called the thick moment of consciousness, where we don't just live in the instant, but where we live in the extended presence of these sensations.
2: And when you're doing this, when you're writing, as it were, consciously about consciousness and thinking of all these processes and writing about them and the processes that are going on in your brain, does it ever blow your mind? It's like, it's layer on layer on layer, and you're participating in that.
1: Absolutely right, and of course, uh, Descartes, the famous French philosopher, wrote of himself as having fallen into a deep whirlpool, which whirled him round and round with nowhere to actually find a footing, and that's what he thought happens to us when we begin to try and analyse our own consciousness. I think that does happen, and it's part of the wonder of consciousness is that it feels like something we can't pin down. Look at yourself in that respect. The fact that you are the center of something which is so mysterious it means you're quite special in the world rocks and stones and cuckoo clocks and things don't have that kind of presence in the world but for us it is a mystery and we're part of that mystery we are the mystery we, we embody it in our own bodies and, and minds and it's not just us we think of other people as being similarly blessed with this kind of extra physical presence in the world and i think that's terribly important it leads us to think of ourselves as mattering, we matter so much indeed that we can't bear the thought of not mattering. That leads us to imagine that this kind of conscious experience and the self which goes with it actually survives physical death, which has led us on to all that sorts of ideas about the immortal soul and so on, which are wonderfully adaptive ideas. Belief in the soul, which comes directly from belief in one's own consciousness has been transformative in terms of human history, human evolution.
2: And who's this book aimed at?
1: It's aimed at everybody. I mean, I don't pull my punches in it. Some of it is not entirely easygoing. But I've written it in, in a kind of narrative form. I thought, how, how best to introduce some of the more difficult ideas. So what I've done is to tell it partly in terms of my own autobiography. And I trace my early encounters with some of these problems in my 20s and 30s as a student in Cambridge, use those to illustrate the kind of issues which I thought about for the next 50 years after that. I mean, it ranges from going on ghost hunts with Professor Broad, my tutor at Trinity, to working with Blind Monkey in the Cambridge Physiology Lab, whom I taught to see again, but she had what's called blindsight. In other words, although she'd learned to see again, she wasn't aware of it, she wasn't conscious of it. That turned out to be extremely important to developing my own ideas. And then I described my a slightly strange experience, working with Diane Fossey, the gorilla expert in, in Rwanda.
2: What was the most surprising thing that came out of all your research and findings when you were putting it together?
1: From the work in Africa on gorillas, I came up with the notion of what is now called social intelligence, the idea that the most important thing which our brains have evolved to do is to do psychology, is to understand other creatures like ourselves. It's much the most difficult problem we face in life. All the rest, all the problems about feeding ourselves or building structures over our head or, or all these physical engineering problems are relatively easy compared with trying to understand how the people we live with, who we love, who we depend on, who depend on us, what their needs will be, how we're going to compete with them, how to manage to do well for ourselves at the same time, keep supporting those around us. In my view, it required the evolution of a new kind of psychological faculty. I call it natural psychology. Say that we evolved to use introspection. We know what other people are going to do by putting ourselves in their place. Because of that, we can imagine if I were you, then I would do this. Now, that's a very sophisticated thing to be doing. No animals can do it as far as we know. I think hadn't, and they many philosophers have said, of course, we model other people and ourselves, but they hadn't ever thought as a scientist or a psychologist might do, however, do you do that? However, do you get a picture of your own mind and then use that to project it onto others? And it turned out to be not to be at all easy. No machines can do that, of course, but no other animals can apparently. Well, I shouldn't say that's quite true. Dogs seem to be not bad at it. They're better than any other animals. They're better than chimpanzees who aren't very good at mind reading. Dogs probably because they've been conditioned and well, because they've lived with humans for so long and only the ones who turned out to be good companions of humans have been allowed to breed. They've increasingly become quite good natural psychologists in their own right. So that dogs can read human minds and we can read dog minds. as. And we can read them much better than we can read cat minds, for example. Cats are probably not natural psychologists.
2: Sentience, the Invention of Consciousness by Nicholas Humphrey is published by OUP Oxford. We're talking on Bookmark today to Hannah-Jane Walker about her book, The Power of Feeling Sensitive in a World That Doesn't. Hannah, there's quite a lot of overlap there from what Nick was saying with what you're writing about, because sensitivity has been a useful evolutionary tool as you explore in your book.
0: Yes, really hugely useful. It's it's really easy to forget that we've lived in various societies and that different things have been useful to us at different points in history. You know, if you ask most people, they will say, for example, something like, oh, yes, my nephew really struggled with school. What he struggled with was the competition element or, or bullying is another one that comes up a lot. And so then you'll inevitably have a conversation about like, could the education system be different? We come to the conclusion that no, there has to be some sort of system in place, which means we have a one-size fits all. But underneath that, behind that, there's a sort of bigger story about like, well, who are we educating, and what are we educating them to do? we we sort of are educating people with the idea and skills in theory that are supposed to be good for society in general. So they're supposed to not only, the job economy but they're supposed to like sustain us as a species in some way and move us forwards and so what I think is really interesting is that we currently don't live in a society which says yes sensitivity is fundamentally really useful to our survival as a species but that there is a sort of older bigger story almost written into us which we can see evidence of in other cultures so I interviewed quite a few anthropologists in the book And they talk a lot about like, yes, we can see that this is useful to us because of dot, dot, dot in this other society. And I think some of it's just about remembering that there is all sorts of things written into us which are really useful to us. And they have got us this far. And they might be some of the ways to start unpicking some of the big, big problems which we face about. Like, you know, it's so easy for us all. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've reached a stage now where I almost can't bear to turn on the news because it just all feels too hopeless and hard and impossible. It just feels like a big knot, which we've all walked into and got our heads and our arms going, what are we going to do? This is terrible. But what I think is really interesting when you start looking back at us, when you look at the resources almost that are in us as a species, is that we're made up of these kind of wonderful array of skills And sensitivity, yeah, is one of those things that is really useful for cooperation between individuals, for innovation, because people using the skill of sensitivity will often look at the interconnections between how information works or how people are interacting. So it's the things which may not be immediately overtly obvious, but they may go, have you noticed that when, dot, dot, dot. And it's that type of thinking. It's much more useful to us historically, and I think now, then we really have a story for.
2: Yes, I mean, you said highly sensitive people are the ones who are looking for differences and can intuit ways forward. And I suppose it's hard to prove, but some of the great movements of the past, the great evolutions of the past, were perhaps brought about by such people.
0: Yes, possibly, and I think possibly brought to the attention of others through people noticing those connections who quite likely to be highly sensitive but are not necessarily changed in isolation by those people because it's about cooperation between different skill sets so one of the things which elaine aaron writes about in her book is this idea of the warrior king and the sage like it or love it it is quite a good working example and that she says you know a successful society has a collaboration between two main thinking types and the warrior king is somebody who is like, right, okay, we're taking action, mobilise the forces, do this, go. And the sage is someone who says, like, have you noticed that this happens when we do that? And that that what's really important is those two skill sets that find each other to be of value and therefore are able to collaborate. But I don't think we have that system in place right now. I think what we have is this idea that teams need to be made up of people who just do and that, like, just the doers are the people who are successful. But actually I think it's about, yeah, it's about collaboration and teamwork between those two things. That was a surprise for me in in exploring the subject of the book because I think when I began, I thought for a moment, it's about more sensitive people taking over. And I'm like, no, it's not. There is probably a reason why highly sensitive people only make up 30, up to 30% of the any population, because that's the proportion that we probably need but what we don't need is that 30% burying their own natures and not ex- not being at tables of power like that's profoundly unhelpful and we also don't need their opposite thinking type thinking that they're not a value and I am curious as to whether the collaboration between those two thinking types can help us think our way through some of the problems that we face right now and those are big problems, aren't they? Indeed they are. Well, let's distract ourselves
2: with some music. Uh, in the meantime, this is your second choice, Up With People by Lamb Chop. Where this one.
0: As I was just talking about, there is so much more potential in us as a species than we realise. I mean, actually, the song originally was not intended to be a sort of actually genuine Up With People song, but it's so cheerful to listen to. I do believe in people and I think that we have extraordinary capacity and resource within us and we need to start thinking of ourselves a bit more as this extraordinary like diverse toolbox that we can draw from.
1: Yeah, there comes a booming sound It used to come from underground But uh-uh. not it,
3: I'm
0: Mark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio.
1: With Heifers Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our up in
2: books And our featured guest on Bookmark today is Hannah Jane Walker talking about her book, The Power of Feeling Sensitive in a world that doesn't. And one of the chapters, Hannah, is about valuing. And you talked a little bit before the music there about valuing and how it's not always the case, but highly sensitive people might be drawn to jobs in the humanities or caring professions. And these are the least valued in society. And it kicks off a spiral of value and self-value.
0: Absolutely. What I found particularly interesting when I um, I was interviewing the head of Future Job Economies from Harvard University, was he said, one of the lowest paid professions and least secure professions that we have societally is carers. There's no real pay scale that you can particularly move up within. Like We don't have an idea about what success looks like in that pay sector. But that is predicted to become one of the biggest boom areas going forwards because we have an increasingly aging population who require care and we geographically are not all within family units. So that care has got to sit somewhere. And so he's predicting that that's going to become an area whereby it's going to become more and more specialized. And so he was asking the question, like, how do you start to determine whether somebody is good at care or bad at care and therefore should be paid more or paid less. And to do that requires like a language to talk about what we mean by care and empathy and quality of care. And that sort of doesn't exist. And so he says, well, it's got to begin somewhere. And he sort of says, you know, he can almost hear the voice of criticism as he across the economist is there saying, let's put language next to care. And lots of people say, no, that shouldn't exist in the same way that we don't hugely have a language which says, This is what the arts really does for us. We just feel it in a, you know, good care when you feel it. You know, when you feel loved, you know, when you don't feel loved, you know, when you feel looked after, you know, when you don't, you know, when you've seen a good piece of art or read a good book, like it does something internally to you, but we do find it quite hard to put language next to that. But unless we put language next to that, we won't be able to pay people well for that. And the point he makes, and I think this is really interesting, is that if we can find a way to put pay next to those things, then they start to increase in value because we do live in a society which values what we put money next to. I was really interested at the end of the spectrum, talking about technology,
2: the role that those who work in technology see for highly sensitive people. You'd think they would be opposite ends of the spectrum, but yeah. I don't how the person you spoke to, pointed out how they come together
0: I thought that too I was like surely there's no role for the highly sensitive skill set within the tech industry and he said well actually we increasingly employ highly sensitive people as specialists because it's all very well for us to develop a sort of program but people won't use a system if it's not intuitively how you would use a system. For example, like Facebook, that famous story about Facebook, like it didn't come with a user manual. Like we all just logged in and learned and knew how to use it. It was an intuitive platform and that's part of its success story. But in order to get that intuitive platform working, truly working with how a person understands and needs it to work, you have to like map the person with the technology. So he sort of describes this, gap for highly sensitive people in the tech industry which is like you know you give a program to somebody and you watch how they respond to that and if they're irritated by like the layout the colors like whether they notice the keywords, whether they intuitively know where to go so yeah that's a really interesting collaboration of skill sets I think and we're just about to hear from Virginia
2: Rath Lynch who's written a memoir how did it feel for you because you do share quite a lot of personal things in this book how did it feel for you putting that out there
0: There, I'm not going to lie there were moments where it was absolutely terrifying but it did also feel very cathartic and it felt very important because what I can't say is hey I am an expert as in like I am at this university and I hold this title because my whole job is based around Sensitivity. So, I have to be using my expertise in some way. And the only expertise I have to share is that I have lived my life as a highly sensitive person. And all I can do is be honest about what my personal experience of that has been, in the hope that, like, rings some notes of recognition for other people. Because actually, I don't think my experience is at all unusual. I think it's quite common. So, that's why I did it. And so, that was that felt good because I was like, well, if I can use my experience for something useful. Great. And there's a a very
2: powerful bit in the book where you talk about what you would say, what Hannah now would say to young Hannah.
0: Yeah, I'd say to young me, like, you are for something. You have skills that are useful out there in the world in some way. And it's not that there's something wrong with you. It's just that there is a story that we're living in, which is that your skill set is not particularly useful. You know, I, I feel very lucky that in my life I found a job which draws on the skills which I, uh, I have. That's been very healing for me to have like gone into the arts. And I feel very privileged in that. And I hope that people find some kind of like safe corner from which they can operate within, whether that's a job, a relationship, a friendship, an environment whereby you can sort of start to give some value back to yourself in some way. Thank you, Hannah. Well, let's hear from
2: Virginia Rath-Lynch now. She's an analytical psychologist and psychotherapist. The Cloak, which came out last month, is her first book. Part memoir, part analysis and study, I asked her how it felt as a former psychologist and psychoanalyst, turning the looking glass back on herself. Very peculiar and quite embarrassing and
3: difficult. But it was my only option because I wanted to describe a psychological process And when I was working in clinical practice, I would observe this process in my patients, but obviously I only saw them for maybe four, five years at the most. And I'm the only person I know from the earliest stages to old age. That's why I'm using myself. But you're quite right to point this out. It is quite a scary thing to do.
2: And the process I think that you're particularly interested in exploring is individuation, am I right?
3: Well, that is the term that Jung uses to describe the development that people can do in the second part of their life. You know, in the first part of your life, you're growing up, you're leaving your parents, you're finding a partner, you're having children, getting a mortgage, maybe getting a career going, buying a car, all those things. They're all external things. And then when you get to sort of midlife, and it's called the midlife crisis, people often feel aimless. They're not quite sure where they're going. They don't quite see the point of anything anymore. Is it all now just downhill all the way to old age? And out of that feeling of aimlessness and depression, there can begin a new life. Well, what Jung calls individuation. This is when people really start to turn the light onto themselves. Instead of looking outwards, they start looking inwards, developing parts of themselves, They never knew existed.
2: And is this something you experienced? And if so, was it something you realised at the time you were experiencing or was it only on reflection?
3: Yes and no, I suppose, is the answer to that. I wrote copiously. The way I coped with the sort of anxiety and depression and frustration that I was experiencing when I was in my mid-40s was by writing journals and by writing it on my dreams. And it was when I stood back and looked at what I had written... You know, a week or two later, then I began to see, ah, this is what's happening to me. I'm beginning to see a pattern here. And then, of course, I wanted to sort of research it and I read up copiously on it. But actually, it's not a cerebral thing. It's a thing you do emotionally. It's a thing you do instinctively and you've just got to
2: keep at it. The notebooks that you've been writing through your life, these proved very useful when you were writing this book.
3: They're the raw material for the book. I mean, I couldn't have written this book without them. I wouldn't be able to remember much from 40 years ago. But these notebooks, they're very vivid and very readable. And actually, when I'm reading some of them, I find myself in, in tears because it was such an extraordinary upheaval in my life that I was going through. Do you want to talk a little bit more about this upheaval? Well, it was, it was a midlife crisis. I mean, I thought my life was pretty good. I was married. I had four children. I had a very interesting job. And on the face of it, everything was just fine. But I felt miserable. I was tense and unhappy. I couldn't sleep without sleeping pills. I mean, I knew something was wrong with me, but I didn't know what. So that's what made me start to probe and look into myself and say, what the hell's going on here? Why am I such a miserable, bad-tempered, old... really. That's how I saw myself in those days. And why now? Why have you written this now? These notebooks from 40 years ago, I've always known that what they told was kind of wonderful and extraordinary, but I never felt ready to write it. I often used to go back and look at them and read maybe a, a page or two and then just couldn't do anything. And I put them back on a bookshelf and forgot about them. And it wasn't until I went and had lunch with a girlfriend in the British Museum and we were looking at an exhibition of Islamic art. And she was talking about her passion for Islamic art and how it began. And and then she turned to me and said, oh, well, Virginia, your passion is music, isn't it? That really took me aback because, of course, music is vitally important to me. But I realised then that the answer was not music. It was individuation. It was this extraordinary process that had gripped me in those years or as recounted in those old notebooks. So then I went home, took them down off the bookshelf and had a look at them again. And
2: then I realised I was ready to write the book. And who's this book aimed at? Do you need a knowledge of psychology to enjoy this book? It's meant for people who have no knowledge of
3: psychology. I mean, I'd be quite interested if anybody knew anything about psychology, they might be quite critical of the things that I say. No, it's just meant for ordinary people who are getting on with their lives, maybe struggling a bit in the middle in the middle of their life. And anybody who wants a story about how somebody manages to get themselves
2: out of a trap and create a new life. And writing it down and reflecting on it, did it make you see things differently, feel differently?
3: Oh, yes, certainly. As I progressed, as I got myself more together, and began to understand more of what, all the stresses and strains in my life, I became much more contented. I mean, now I'm 87. I'm an old lady. I don't feel an old lady, mind you, but I am happier now, I think, than I've ever been in my life. It's a sort of lovely feeling of contentment. I don't have to search any longer. I sort of feel I've found my base. And why the cloak? Well... 40 years ago, when I was in the middle of this turmoil and trying to sort myself out, one of the things I would do, I would sit in my study with a notebook on my lap and a felt pen in my hand, and I would close my eyes and sink down into myself, trying to get into what was it that was causing such turmoil. It was rather like dreaming, except I was awake, and images came up very powerful images and one of the images that I encountered was the cloak and it happened like this I found myself in an underground grotto it was very hot and steamy and there was a a sound of water cascading down somewhere and there was water all over the ground and I took off all my clothes and I rolled in the water and then when I got up to put my clothes on again They weren't there. And instead, there was this cloak lying on the ground, a very heavy, ornate, rather beautiful cloak. And I stood looking at it rather bewildered. And a voice said to me, put the cloak on. You have to learn to wear the cloak. I mean, even just telling you about it brings tears to my eyes. It was so powerful. And it is that image of the cloak and wearing the cloak, which has driven me to write the book.
2: And writing the book and thinking about your past, any regrets, anything you'd do differently?
3: Hundreds of things I'd do differently.
2: <laughs> oh, yes. But,
3: of course, I wouldn't be me if I did it differently. I mean, I had to learn. I had to make endless mistakes. I made so many mistakes in the choice of men in my life. I made so many mistakes in the way I handled things when they were difficult. But, you know, that is life, isn't it? You learn from your mistakes.
2: And what advice would you give to your younger self if you could go back and talk to her?
3: I'd say it's going to come out okay.
2: Don't be so worried. Just keep at it. It'll come right in the end. The Cloak by Virginia Rath Lynch is published by All She Wrote. We've been talking on Bookmark today to Hannah Jane Walker about her book, The Power of Feeling Sensitive in a World That Doesn't, published by Aster. Hannah, did the book... Take the shape you thought it would.
0: No, (laughs) which was so surprising to me. So what I thought this was a book about was how individuals who are highly sensitive can learn to be at peace with their own nature. And that's what I thought the book was about. And it is. But what I started to realize, and to be honest, it panicked me a little bit at first, was that the interviews people kept talking about capitalism and environmental change and how we move forward as a species and I was like oh wow this is actually a story about bigger older values and resources yes it's just a story bigger than an individual story it's a story about what we value as a species and who we say is important and how so yeah that was the surprise to me um what's next for you what are you doing at the moment So I'm currently working on new book proposals. I've just been doing one of those today. I'm working on various other projects with other organisations. So I'm doing a little project with Kettle's Yard, a little project with Sainsbury Centre of Visual Arts. Really happy to be returning to some practitioner work whereby, you know, working with school groups and stuff post the pandemic and just launched a project in Saffron Walden, which is where I'm based, which is a new neon signs project. So I collaborated with people in the street to be honest I've walked up to them and talked to them about how they felt the town was changing and we made these neon signs which are in the window of Bicicletta and they launched yesterday. And a question that we ask all our featured guests on Bookmark what are you reading at the moment? To be honest I haven't had any time to read recently I have a kid who is often unwell so that's the main thing that's taken a hit but the last book that I read that I really loved which was I read it about six weeks ago, was a book by someone who I really admire called Selena Godden, who for a long time has had a career as a poet. And this is her debut novel. And it's called Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death. And it's so refreshingly written. It's sort of it's a hybrid form book in that it sort of slips between direct speech, more conventional literary forms and then poetry. And it does it sort of without apologizing for that, which I I just love. Thank you,
2: Hannah. We'll come back to you in just a moment for your last choice of music, but a heads up our next show. The theme there is really publishing books, the future of publishing, because our featured guest is John B. Thompson talking about his book, Book Wars, the digital revolution in publishing. We'll hear from best-selling author AJ Campbell on her self-publishing experience. And Kathy Moore will be talking about the Cambridge Literary Festival. But we'll sign out now, Hannah, with your last choice of music, The Lost Words Blessing by Spell Songs. This is beautiful. Why this one?
0: It is beautiful, isn't it? It's a song we listen to a lot in our house, particularly at the end of the day when we're trying to all sort of like find a way to come back together after we've all been in our separate days. And my kid finds it really soothing. That whole album is a beautiful album. But that's our favourite one. And it always makes me a little bit tearful, that song, because it's so, well, it's obviously very connected to nature. The whole album is. And there's something so very generous about a song which connects you with nature in that way. It feels to me like it's a song that takes me back into my nervous system almost. And says like, it's okay. It's okay. And we all need that. Highly sensitive people in particular really do need that. So I think it's a song that I use and my family use for soothing.
1: Enter the wild with care, my love,
3: and speak the things you see. Let your names take and root and thrive and grow.
1: Cambridge 105 Radio.